All right. It's time to uh, let's put a lid on things with our epic mini-episode-long Beatles uh, examination here on the Overnightscape Central. And uh, my stalwart companion, Frank Edward Norris here. You had your chance, and I'm not going to belabor that because we're moving on just like Merle Haggard and all the rest um, into other things, other fun, and other Overnightscape Centrals. Try to get it back to whatever status quo we were maintaining before I got lost in the Beatles. This time around, we're looking at the Beatles and their solo careers, what they did after the Beatles. Uh, I have a quick uh, synoptic view that I'm going to play at the end of the show that I've recorded. And uh, we're going to just dive right in to our Beatles finale. And uh, let's hear what Frank Edward Nora has to say. And uh, I'll add some comments, I am sure, somewhere along the way. So uh, next month, I'm going to be uh, going to see Fish, the band Fish, P-H-I-S-H, at um, Madison Square Garden. And I have a ticket for all seven nights. Seven nights over the course of about nine or ten days. just a few days off. But um, one time I was there recently at MSG to see them. That's pretty much the only place I've ever seen them is at Madison Square Garden. I was, uh, you know, chatting with the person next to me about how this is almost like the, if the Beatles were still together, all four original members, and they're still going and making new music and better than ever. And uh, it really, it really, uh, it, there are some parallels, definitely, between Fish and the Beatles. They had the uh, the early member Jeff Holdsworth, who quit the band early on, kind of similar to Pete Best, who was somewhat fired rather than quit the band. The, uh, the incredible, the, the humble beginnings, the incredible rise to fame and fortune. Though, of course, Fish. Perhaps certainly not at the, that level of the Beatles, but they're still a pretty high level. I mean, a band that can sell out Madison Square Garden, in this case, seven nights in a row a few years ago, 13 nights in a row. Very few bands that can do that, right? Fish are kind of the ob- the opposite. Like, most people don't wouldn't even know a single Fish song, though they're that popular. It's weird. Though uh, people like that uh, never knew the Beatles. Like, guys I work with that are younger... Never listen to the Beatles. When they start listening, they're like, oh, I know this song, I know this song, I know this song. I just didn't know it was a Beatles song. But, yeah, Fish did break up also. They broke up and for a couple years, kind of like the Beatles broke up. But unlike the Beatles, Fish got back together. Excuse me. And since then, uh, they've just been better than ever and continuing, as I said, making new songs, new albums, all sorts of interesting stunts and fun stuff. So I'm taking advantage, you know, at least going to see them uh, when they're nearby here. I don't think I quite have the uh, the wherewithal to uh, follow them on tour. That'd be cool, though, going to every single show. But it is sad the Beatles never got back together. Of course, they broke up around 1970, and uh, it's now 53 years later. And uh, I think... Those first 10 years, everyone was really hoping, praying, and expecting (coughs) perhaps the Beatles would get back together. But, of course, 10 years later in 1980, John Lennon is killed, and uh, any hope of that is, is dashed. 
Yeah, it's hard to sort of imagine what it's like to be a Beatle after the Beatles. Um, <laughs> there's something, <coughs> I've always found something a little bit kind of sad about the Beatles after the Beatles, that is having to sort of live in the shadow of your younger self, right? And I think also examining this topic of the Beatles after the Beatles really depends on uh, what history you look at it from, what angle you're looking at it from. There's, of course, the most, the more mainstream angle, which is just take this at face value for young lads. Of course, there were more people involved. We'll get to those. Pete Best, Stu Sutcliffe, et cetera. George Martin, you could say, was an unofficial Beatle. You know, all these people. But anyway, these young lads from very humble beginnings becoming these, these global superstars. And as things, uh, you know, went, kept going, they just had lots of uh, interpersonal issues, business conflicts, and all sorts of problems. And in the end, it was just they just couldn't stand each other anymore after having this incredible adventure together. Very sad that they couldn't keep going. They couldn't get back together. But it just, you know, and, and also, obviously, the spouses, all you know, the partners all had different opinions and formed different camps. I know especially there was a Paul and... Was it was it Linda Eastman's cousin or uncle or something? Who's that guy? The biz, the new business manager that Paul brought in. That really seems to be a point in the in the traditional non-conspiracy story. That seemed to, Alan Klein, right? That was his name. I'm trying to do this all off the top of my head without referring to the internet, as I figure uh, this this one I have plenty to say without looking at the internet about the Beatles after the Beatles. Yeah, that uh, Alan Klein. And that business, I think it was the business side of things in the traditional track, the version that we that, that has no conspiracy theories where Paul never got killed or anything, that uh, I think it was, the, it was the business thing that kind of um, <clears throat> caused the breakup. And I think also, I think you could look at uh, John Lennon and his kind of, his personality, he, was, he seemed to be kind of, uh, unstable and uh, in in some ways, and hard to work with. Um, and of course, everyone points to Yoko Ono as someone he just sort of met at this art gallery and became enamored with, and um, and kind of wanting to do stuff that's more art rather than uh, popular music. These are all theories, right? You know. I mean, I think like uh, someone like Ringo was really content to sort of uh, remain in the background a bit, right? He sort of was, he had was sort of brought into the band late, and uh, he, uh, even though Paul does say he was also brought into the band late. <laughs> so we'll get to that in a minute, but obviously in the tr- traditional sense he wasn't. He was one of the founding members. But Ringo, you know, sort of had his, his own career going a little bit in Liverpool and was brought into the Beatles, and then, uh, and, and of course... No one can say, had Pete Best remained in the band as the drummer, would the Beatles have ever risen to the heights they did? I, d- I don't know. I think it was the chemistry of all four, Ringo being really an essential part of that, right? A very unique, Ringo has a very unique look, a very unique uh, personality, and, I'd, and, and sort of an anchor for the band in some ways. And that image of the four, the four guys... And George Harrison seemed, seemed to be a bit of a sourpuss. Of course, we saw in the Get Back documentary uh, a great snapshot of what was going on with the Beatles 
towards the end, right? And you could kind of see uh, sort of the situation as it was, of course. Yoko Ono never leaving John's side and R- Ringo looking miserable and George just sort of not even seeming like he wanted to be there and Paul being very bossy and demanding and right if you watch that you, it doesn't you're not you don't you're not like scratching your head oh my god why did they break up you can kind of see why they broke up right but of course um, I would say overall that none of them by themselves was uh, anywhere near as good as the Beatles <laughs> I think that's Kind of goes without saying, but it has to be said. Uh, the all four of them together, the music they produced was utterly incredible. As you, if you've been listening to our series of shows here on Overnight Escape Central, uh, you know the music is just incredible. And e- even revisiting all of it, as we did, pretty much all of it, um, it's stunning. There's no body of work uh, in popular music like that. I don't know if there's anybody who works like that. It is just absolutely stunning. It's an endless mystery how they got all these songs. Especially, in my opinion, looking at what they did afterwards, right? And I think you'd have to say, in some sense, again, we're, we're in track. So let's just say track A is the track of no conspiracy theories, no Paul is dead, no Illuminati, nothing like that. It's, let's just talk about the straight-ahead story that may be true. I think track B, which involves Paul is dead, conspiracy theories, Illuminatis, also may be true, right? Um, but in the, in track A, how did they create this music? I mean, I know that uh, there were many times where uh, John Lennon, I think especially, would say that him and Paul were the only ones that really mattered in the band and that, and that George and Ringo were uh, expendable, essentially. Though George did turn out to be a quite a good songwriter on his own, though I don't know how much stuff he did in his solo career. Because I, I have to say, that honestly, that I have not really delved into any of the Beatles, post-Beatles careers, that much. I know the hits, and I may have, uh, you know, I had a Paul McCartney and Wings compilation. That's probably, I think Paul probably had the most significant amount of music, just talking about songs uh, in the post-Beatles era. I don't know much from Ringo, and I've been trying to get into the George Harrison stuff, but obviously there's a Traveling Wilburys. I did have that album. But anyway, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is um, the four of them together, and especially the Lennon-McCartney songwriting team, right, they were able to sort of uh, rein each other in and uh, have to sort of create songs with this much different dynamic in the band as opposed to solo, where you have total control of your own music. Right. The music afterwards, I don't think, is anywhere near as good as the Beatles' music. And uh, so in track A, it just really is that the chemistry they had as a band. I mean, when you're writing a song, it's going to be a Beatles song, right? It's, you know, sometimes you're co-writing them, sometimes you're not, but it's all with the expectation, this is going to be a Beatles song. All four Beatles are going to be playing it, are going to have opinions about it. Everyone in the world is going to talk about it. It's a Beatles song, Right. And as a songwriter, and obviously in track A, Lennon and McCartney, and you could say at first it was Lennon, right, was the the force behind the band. And his, his, he, saying he's like a creative genius, and it took Paul a little longer to kind of come into his own. Um, But of course, the songs they produced were amazing. And then of course, you know, obviously George Harrison, 
one of their biggest songs, Something, is a George Harrison song, you know. Ringo, I think, uh, you know, he wrote a few songs, Don't Pass Me By, right? And uh, I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. Yeah. But he was—he re- never really had that compositional, um, particular compositional skill. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I think Frank and I are pretty much on the same track, more or less, on this. I th- there was something about the actual Beatles in the day with George Martin, and I have to—you can't talk about the Beatles and what they did without giving this incredible amount of credit to that George Martin guy. I mean, he was such a curator, collaborator, um, had ideas and knew how to present them, and held together the, the glue that held them all together. And there's just no band in history who just had so many literally what seemed to be these perfect, amazing, well-delivered, well, it just all these neat little touches here and there, these perfect songs presented in this solid state. And that's the word that comes to mind. It was a solid state arrangement where everything was like this machine that was so carefully crafted And these songs, the most amazing thing is now, what, 60 years later, after these songs were made, they bear repeated listening, they catch your ear, and and they do what too many songs don't do at all, even once. They did song after song, single after single, and even the album tracks have this, I mean, even Mr. Moonlight, which is the worst Beatles song of all. I mean, to me, it has more of an earworm. It's catchier than, and that could be my trained ear based on my era, the 60s and 70s, which that has a lot to do with the popular music or the music a person appreciates and listens to. I have no doubt uh, in 20, 30 years, when what's on the radio now are oldies, it will have been kind of assimilated. And even I'll be like, like disco. It was just not cool. And I didn't want to listen. But now, because it became part of our overall music, I mean, I can listen to disco long before I can listen to most of whatever you call that auto-tune, R&B-like, I don't know what that seems to pervade whenever I try to listen to what's in the top 40. Uh, it's just... And that's the mystery of music in general, especially popular music. But we have to remember even Beethoven and Mozart and things that are considered so stodgy, classic, and eternal were at one time the popular, the operas were the popular music of their time. Uh, There was a more limited number of people who could even hear music before there was recorded music. There were people who basically would almost never hear 
music. And that's another thing that, I mean, it's almost impossible from our point of view in 2023 to consider because we're carrying around an entire music library in our pocket. And if you can log in on an internet, we have Spotify, which I remember criticizing so strongly that it was just a bunch of crap. Uh, I'm still not that thrilled at how much money they give the artists, but, you know, how much money did the top 40 radio station give the artists? So it's just a continuation of the business model that is how music is brought to us. And until somebody comes up with a better paradigm, they try it with Bandcamp, but really now, how many of us go to Bandcamp and try to listen to all these bands and support them? It's just a logistic impossibility as far as that goes. Anyhow, I'm getting way off topic. I just wanted to say that the Beatles, I agree 100% with Frank here. They did something that, no matter how you look at it, was miraculous. Yeah, so it's really a shame when you think about it that uh, whereas it seems like they couldn't really get back. Why didn't they get back together? Why didn't they try to get back together if after a few years past, say, like 74, 75? Why not try? In track A, it does seem that, like, it would be something that I would think would be possible in track A. <coughs> now, of course, had John Lennon not been killed. And of course, George Harrison died in 2001. I had to look that one up. I thought he died much later for some reason. I thought he died like in 2016 or 2014 or something. That was a weird gap. Maybe a weird Mandela thing. I don't know. That was 2001 when George died. George Harrison, not George Martin. But George Martin also died, right? Yeah, I think so. Because his, his, his son Giles or Giles Martin is, is taking the role of his father in the Beatles world. Obviously, Beatles... Uh, as a business concern, as a musical concern, and all the endless reissues and dredging up of uh, unreleased material, which I'm all very happy. I want to hear it all. I want to hear Carnival of Light. I want to hear the final Beatles version of of, of Now and Then, which apparently is coming out this year, as as we talked about last time. Uh, But Giles Martin, or is it Giles? (laughs) I'll call him Giles. What is he, Street Fighter? Sonic Boom. No, it's not Guile. It's Giles, I think. Martin. Um, Yeah. But anyway, maybe if John hadn't gotten killed in track A, uh, right, maybe they would have gotten back together in the 80s. You never know. Um, But in our reality, of course, they never never got back together, except if you want to say for this... The songs in the anthology, which is a real stretch to say they got back together. They kind of got back together. They kind of didn't, you know. The free as a bird, and um, uh, and real love, and now the third one, which is finally going to be released now and then. It was sort of, kind of, kind of a Beatles reunion, but not really. So. Yeah, I would say if anyone, Paul McCartney in track A is, uh, you know, he had some solo albums and he had Wings. His wife Linda was in there. I know there, there were those very unkind uh, releases where they had her vocals uh, isolated and she had no singing ability whatsoever. 
Linda Eastman. Um, yeah, but his, I, I don't know, so his songs afterwards, there's a lot of really big songs. Like, we're so sorry, Uncle Albert. You know, open the door and let him in. I gotta say that there's a silly love songs. Right, Jet. Do, 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 do. Band on the run. Right, like there's a lot of songs that have that kind of Beatles ish sort of foundation to them. Um, so I'd say his stuff is, at least for me, I've, I've been more familiar with his stuff, and it's been more kind of like songs everyone's heard, right? John Lennon had a bunch of songs. Obviously, the song Imagine is pretty universal. Imagine no religion. It's easy if you try. Uh, Instant Calm is going to get you. You know, there's a few songs here and there. But not to the same volume as, as Paul had. And if George Harrison, I don't know, I've tried a bunch of times getting into his stuff. And... Uh, I don't know why. I never really got into his solo stuff. And Ringo, I know, had a few albums. Was it Back Off Boogaloo? <laughs> Something like that. I know he's still going. Obviously, today in track A, all we have left is Paul and Ringo. And Ringo has some sort of all-star band that tours. I really don't know much about them. Pete Best was a Beatle. Still around. He, uh... Um... He shows up now and then. I, I The term now and then again. Uh, there's a clip of him on Letterman. I watched a little bit of it. I need to see the whole thing. You feel so bad for the guy. How, what he must have gone through, being fired from the Beatles, and then then what happened? He always seemed to have a good attitude. I also remember hearing a, an interview on the radio with him maybe in the 90s. He put out a record it's called Something Like Fiddler's Green, and he was being interviewed on the radio, and he had a pretty good attitude about the whole thing. In track A, I don't know if he would have a, as good of an attitude. But in track B, he probably felt he dodged the bullet getting that, out of that hellish hellish situation. So what about track... Let's go full track B now, okay? Which gives the post-Beatles era a completely different uh, tone. Track B is the full conspiracy side that I've been talking about extensively. That the Beatles were a band that were chosen by these shadowy Illuminati-like forces to be a part of their scheme to change world society through music. And um, so the Beatles were chosen uh, to be sort of the spearhead of this uh, project, which... um, You could look at it, uh, the, the intention behind the project... Uh, it could be a couple different ways. You could say that the military-industrial complex, the military weapons manufacturers who want to have endless warfare, were concerned with uh, how how much longer are the people going to keep putting up with this these endless, pointless wars? How can you alter world society, especially the youth, so that they won't protest so much? Right, and this sort of has parallels with. Um, the very mysterious Laurel Canyon scene, right, in California. Which, if there's any validity to track B here, certainly would have been uh, a part of the same project, where a few years into the Beatles uh, situation, the mid-60s, all of these, uh, this is the Laurel Canyon thing, and you can find a book called uh, Strange Scenes Inside the Canyon. 
to touch on this a bit, uh, that uh, children of um, intelligence personnel, you know, people that are in the CIA, in, in various military branches, um, and the children also of very old families that would be connected to all this, all moved to this one obscure neighborhood in Los Angeles known as Laurel Canyon and sort of formed the beginnings of the hippie movement, right? And uh, the idea there was that the military-industrial complex, again, wanted to figure out how do you um, make sure that the youth is no longer protesting the endless wars, right? In that case, it was to sort of uh, build up this uh, this uh, this uh, subculture known as the hippies, and indelibly associate them with the anti-war movement, and then destroy them. Right? The hippies were savagely lampooned in the mainstream media, as you can see so much of uh, in in the mid to late, later '60s, and then of course we get Charles Manson. Uh, a hippie serial killer. And uh, so now, indelibly, the hippies are associated with anti-war, and now everyone has very negative views of the hippies, and it sort of tended to uh, um, reduce the anti-war movement. And one of those, one of the tracks or tactics was, uh, you know, to encourage, um, you know, kind of a hedonistic lifestyle with... Um, the drugs, especially the psychedelic drugs, being uh, central to that. And the idea is that as if you could create a youth movement where this is sort of adjunct to the whole the hippie thing, and right, if you could actually get kids to be um, complacent and just satisfied with their hedonistic drug-taking lifestyle, they would be too sort of zonked out to be involved in any anti-war movement, right? And the Grateful Dead are, are associated with this as well as... Uh, Ken Casey, the guy that orchestrated the acid tests, and um, Robert Hunter, one of the main lyricists of the band, they both were involved in the MK Ultra program, uh, taking LSD in the early days. And uh, Hunter and another band member who was in very briefly, uh, 68, 69, 70 maybe, mostly, yeah, just for a couple years, uh, Tom Constantin also. So Hunter and Constantin were also Scientologists. And I always sort of thought that Scientology was also associated with this stuff as kind of a, uh, we know Scientology kind of started with um, <coughs> Jack Parsons, <coughs> who was sort of, uh, he, he wound up joining uh, the dilemma movement of Aleister Crowley. And uh, he kind of gave uh, L. Ron Hubbard his start in a way um, to create this kind of uh, all-consuming uh religious system that would sort of control people and keep them completely in line, which could be seen as another angle on this world control thing. Now, I would just like to step back and say these are all theories. I don't know what's true, and this may all be a bunch of BS, but I don't think it's all BS. Well, again, I don't know, but I think there's enough evidence, enough circumstantial evidence to at least consider it. Um, So The Grateful Dead, also a band I absolutely love, and actually, the Dead and Company just played in New York this past week, and I didn't go. I was listening to one of their shows. Really great stuff. Part of it, part of what I'm not super excited about Dead and Company is that uh, they stopped uh, any kind of new music, and they're just playing the old music. I think it's important for me that a band continues to make new music, right? As, as a band st- that shows the band is still alive and not just a uh, an oldies act, you know. 
The Grateful Dead and Dead is a bit of an exception to that, and the music is so good. But I was all, and even after Jerry died in '95, Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead, they kept the the remaining band members formed a group called the Other Ones, and then the Dead, and they continued making new songs. And those songs are kind of lost to history. Dead and Company doesn't play those songs, you know, uh, which is kind of a shame. I, I was sort of fascinated by that that uh, that era of uh, post Jerry dead groups but anyway um, the other way of looking at it is that this this is a bit more far out is that um, there was a plan so the idea is that this in this additional theory that our world is a part of a, a, a an interconnected series of worlds connected through interdimensional pathways and our world specifically had been sealed off as kind of an experiment. And the decision had been made that by 1970-ish, they were going to throw open the doors, throw open the gates, and uh, <coughs> uh, introduce uh, the humans of Earth to the interdimensional society. And that the Beatles and other groups were, but especially the Beatles, were meant to prepare the world for uh, this new kind of lifestyle and this new kind of interdimensional society. And I know that's a bit more of an outrageous theory than the whole military-industrial complex thing. Um, but in in that sense, it was it's very important that uh, humanity, especially the young people, be altered, be prepared for the changes that were coming in 1970. And in this timeline, at least, that change never came. That was canceled. There was there was no throwing open of the gates. And uh, in this timeline, we are all still under the uh, behind the doors, and they ne- were never opened, right? So th- those are my two big theories about Track B: is uh, you know the just the military industrial complex part or the interdimensional society part. But in this in this track. The Beatles were chosen, right? Obviously, very talented, but they were not as talented as you know they eventually seem to be. Because in this theory, while the Beatles may have written some of their songs, they were given a lot of their songs from an from an otherworldly source, right? The songs were coming from another world, perhaps composed by beings that have uh, abilities, creative abilities far beyond those of human beings, right? <coughs> and uh, they were um, given these songs. Even in the military-industrial complex side, the theory is that some people have said and theorized that the Beatles, in, even in that track, uh, did not write their uh, the majority of their best songs, that they also came from another source. Um, <coughs> so, <coughs> in track B, um, in... The fall of 1966, Paul McCartney, the original James Paul McCartney, um, crashed his car and got and and and, and got killed. And uh, at that moment, <clears throat> those that were behind the scheme um, decided that it was too important to let the news out, and they were going to uh, replace Paul with a lookalike, and the guy, uh, this guy Billy Campbell or whatever his real name was came in and uh, took over the role of Paul. And you might imagine that everyone in the Beatle camp, the Beatles themselves, everyone associated uh, with them, <clears throat> uh, 
the manager, Brian Epstein, and all of the partners and spouses and families and everyone uh, were, were, were told this, you know. And I have in this, in track B, I think that they already knew that they were involved in something much bigger and there was a very powerful, powerful force behind this and they were benefiting from it and they were already in too deep and they were told, and I'm sure they weren't told everything, but they were told enough theoretically speaking, they were told enough to know that these were not people to be messed with, right? And uh, so they were told, we're going to continue on with the Beatles. We're bringing in a new Paul. Can you imagine? They, they would have said, no one's going to believe this guy's Paul. Are you crazy? But then the Illuminati types were like, listen, these people will believe anything we tell them. It's too a, a big, big lie like this. Uh, it will, will, you know, the bigger the lie, the harder it is for people to resist it. I know there was some quote, maybe some one of those Nazis had a quote like that, Garing or something. But anyway, <coughs> it, it would have been an utterly miserable time. And all of the remaining people in the Beatles camp were sort of um, understood they were under an extreme threat. Were they not able to keep up this ruse? And it clearly would have been uh, utter misery to be part of this. That's why I say... Pete Best in track B may have uh, gotten a wind of this and knew what was going on and was very happy to not be a part of it. Um, Brian Epstein, of course, died of a drug overdose very shortly after that, right? Uh, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was in 67, I believe, he, uh, he, he died of a drug overdose. He may not have been on board with the plan in track B, Um John Lennon, of course, was the probably the biggest threat as probably the most talented and maybe most unstable personality. How are you going to deal with him? How is he not going to break down and talk? Well, what you do is you bring in uh, a handler, and his handler in track B clearly is Yoko Ono, who was brought in um, to be by his side at all times. Like literally, there's not a she's sitting next to him at all times to make sure he doesn't break down and start talking about what's that Paul, Paul died right so that explains the Yoko Ono thing um, that she was sort of and it's weird because right I, I found out that Yoko Ono had visited Paul McCartney at his house like a year or year and a half before she even met John weird weird stuff anyway uh, so um, the utter misery of the situation and the new Paul kind of having to get ahead of the whole thing um, as I've said extensively, I don't think the new Paul really looks like the old Paul that much. But no one could believe that such a big deception could be pulled off. So it has to be Paul, right, even though it doesn't really look the same. Um, around the same time, of course, the uh, the Apollo moon missions uh, – go off and uh, 69 of course the Beatles were still going and again there's a, a lot of those a lot of people believe that was a big hoax but it was such a big lie that most people accepted it and still do to this day so the big lies and I've talked to people about these different conspiracies and they've some a few people told me they're like Frank I hear what you're saying about the moon missions but someone would have talked you know, that's that's the big uh, you know 
that's the big uh, counter argument to all these conspiracy theories. And uh, yes, they would have talked if it was just like there were just normal people involved, and they were told, "Oh, you're 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 working on this fake moon mission." But you know, probably ninety five percent or more of the people involved in Apollo wouldn't even have known it was fake. The few that did, uh, you know, were, I think, most of them were already part of the Mas- uh, They're part of Masonic lodges where the culture of secrecy is is very 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 strong. And of course, you know, people un- would understand that if they talked, not just them, but their families and their children would be victimized by this group if they talked, right? So, um, anyway, um, and, y- and if you look at Get Back, you know, and, you know, which is a much expanded version of the Let It Be documentary, from this angle, it makes total sense that the fake Paul is getting ahead of things by being front and center and very bossy and taking on the creative reins of the project. Um, and the other Beatles, they did seem miserable, and uh, they were miserable in track B, right? So, um, whichever the reasoning behind track B, uh, the the band was allowed to, d- to disband in 1970, relieving the other three Beatles of this uh, horrible situation they were in to some extent, though... They then had to keep this secret for the rest of their lives. Uh, maybe Brian Epstein uh, could not be trusted. He was taken out immediately. Um, John Lennon, of course, continuing to be kind of a uh, a danger, a loose cannon, he's taken out. In this, in track B, obviously, the assassination was orchestrated by those same people. He's taken out of commission. Um, and then George Harrison, uh, whatever happened to him? I, I know someone tried to stab him at some point, and then... He died of cancer in 2001. So, uh, New Paul, I guess, would not be considered a, a problem as he's not going to talk. But who was he? Where did he come from? Right. <laughs> it's a good. So, like in the uh, military-industrial complex side, he was just probably a mind control victim. Um, someone that was easy, easy to control. But in the uh, the more far out side of Track B, he could have been actually a clone or someone imported from another reality, maybe another timeline, uh, anything like this. And of course, then we have Ringo, who um, perhaps because of his uh, <coughs> slightly less lesser connection to the band in the sense that he was brought in later in the, in, in the formation process, and seems to be a very practical sort. Uh, he was uh, not considered to be a danger of, of talking about all this, right? But anyway, you can see that um, track A and track B have very different tones, uh, right? Because you think in track A, hey, you're no longer with the Beatles, but you're one of the most famous people in the world, and now the sky's the limit. You can do what you want. And uh, total f- musical freedom... And you're really rich, and you know, you can sort of just write your own check. You can just do or be whatever you want. Track B is this miserable kind of uh, you have, and I, and I think that probably they in track B, none of them would really have 
they would only have been given some information and not really knowing exactly what was going on or not even really knowing exactly how big the threat was, but certainly knowing that if they talked about it, they would be, uh, this repercussions would be extreme. So they, they really, really gives you a very different uh, perspective on the post-Beatles, the Beatles after the Beatles, which depending on what track. I know most people are, are, are on track A, and that's fine. You know, track A is fine. That's the comfortable track. Track B, of course, is uh, some people go there. Some people don't want to go there. Listen, you don't have to go there. Uh, I don't know which one is true. I, I consider both of them. But uh, so who are the other Beatles? So Stu Sutcliffe obviously died real early, early 60s. I think he died of a brain hemorrhage. Um, not sure. I, I know I saw that movie Backbeat and, you know, so he wasn't involved. Pete Best, you know, has sort of continued on in the background and is still going as far as I know. He didn't really do much. Um, Ringo, um, he married Barbara Bach. Apparently they're still married, I think. A beautiful actress. And uh, he was, uh, he, he did a few things. He was he was an actor. He was in um, some movies like Caveman. I remember seeing Caveman with Ringo Starr, the comedic uh, prehistoric caveman movie. I think Barbara Bach was in that as well. Is that where you met her? I don't know. Then, of course, he uh, he played the, the station guy in uh, Thomas the Tank Engine for a little while. And then I think he just did this all-star band thing. And um, he has some kids. I know Zach Starkey is also a drummer that's been doing stuff. But I think of all of them, Ringo's kind of like sort of kind of the least going on. And he as he did sort of have the least talent, so to speak, at least in terms of songwriting. And he's still around. He's still doing stuff. I read some interview with someone, I forget, I think it was in Rolling Stone, which my mother-in-law has a lifetime subscription, so I get the Rolling Stones, and someone was talking about hanging out with Ringo as sort of to brag. You know. uh, George Harrison, you know, did have a lot of music. I know he did, like, the concert for Bangladesh, a bunch of albums. Um, he had that... Uh, Cloud Nine was that the album in the eighties? When and that song "When We Was Fab" talking about the whole Beatles era that was a pretty good song. And then of course the Traveling Wilburys. He joined a band with other superstars, uh, Jeff Lynne from Electric Light Orchestra, not the biggest star. Then of course uh, Roy Orbison, Pretty Woman, right? And and then of course Bob Dylan <laughs> and uh, Tom Petty. Yes. And I particularly am not a fan of Tom Petty or um, Bob Dylan, but I do like them in the Traveling Wilburys, right? Handle me with care. I'm so tired of being lonely. I still have some love to give. Won't you show me that you really care? Yeah. And then there there was a second album, too, of the Traveling Wilburys. I don't know much about the second album, but yeah. Uh, and I know, what was it? Was he, was he, George was married to Patty Boyd, who actually is in A Hard Day's Night as one of the girls on the train. I think he got divorced from her, though. I'm not sure. But yeah, he, he died in 2001. Um, so I was watching an interview with him on, uh, oh, as part of the Paul is Dead thing, with when he, he came out with um, When We Was Fab. And at times you could sort of see George kind of 
cracking a bit in track B. Uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. He's like, uh, we loved John very much, and of course, we all love. You can't really tell if he's saying love or loved. We loved Paul very much, but we're all that's left. So he was in public saying things that we're not quite saying it, but kind of saying it. And there's other interviews that George did where he's kind of saying it by not saying it. So maybe he sort of ran afoul of the of the handlers, and that's why they took him out in track B. Although in track A, it just was cancer that killed him and not anything else. Um, John Lennon, I think it's the strangest one because you have this sense of John Lennon in this kind of very sad 1970s, like, oh, was him and Yoko, like when they, remember they took over the Mike Douglas show for like a week and, you know, his uh, association with uh, Harry Nilsson and they had like a screaming contest and Harry Nilsson like destroyed his vocal cords like permanently just bizarre stuff like that and sort of, you know, his drug use, his heroin and break and his breaking up with Yoko for a while and going out with this woman, May Pang. And, uh, it's interesting. There's a, uh, my wife, you know, works at a nursing home and, uh, one of her, uh, one of the people that was a, a resident at the nursing home, maybe just for a subacute, you know, recovery. She said she was involved in that group and, and had was, was, uh, she's from originally from Japan and she was a friend of Yoko Ono's and had, uh, was teaching John how to speak Japanese and was talking all about her association with John. So that's kind of interesting. My wife met someone who was good friends with John Lennon at that time. And the music John produced, I mean, um, I had a cassette of a compilation called Shaved Fish. But again, I I was never super impressed with his music uh, after the Beatles. It does sort of seem that if, if in track B... That's his real talent, you know. And I know PQ has mentioned that he thought the songs were really good after the Beatles. And maybe I need to t- – because, I, I, again, for none of the Beatles have I – am I as obsessive? And with the Beatles, I know every single song inside and out, and I'm s- so into it. But I really have never – that has never really extended to the solo careers. And um, it's uh, – yeah, it's weird. I don't know if that's just – I think to me it's just that the song, the music's just not as good and not really worth uh, pursuing as much. But, of course, John Lennon moved to New York City and was living in that apartment with the Dakota building by uh, Central Park on the west side there. Got killed by this maniac, Mark David Chapman, who, of course, was reading uh, Catcher in the Rye like all the other murderous people <laughs> and uh, I guess wanted to be the last person to get his autograph and, you know, in track B, definitely a uh, an MK Ultra victim that was just used as the patsy for this uh, to take him out. Now, of course, with any once you're in track B, right, you don't know what really happened. Maybe he wasn't killed and just taken away to an island somewhere or another dimension somewhere. But as far as the narrative goes, he was killed. Um, yeah, I was also reading an article. In Shin, uh, was it no? It was in Retrofan magazine. How John and Yoko tried to introduce this new country called Newtopia. They were trying to create their own country. It was like a state of mind, and but yeah, considering how he was in some ways, at least in the early days, the leader of the Beatles and the main creative force, he felt very diminished in the seventies, a shadow of his former self. 
and it's it's always been very sad to see. Um, Paul, on the other hand, I think, uh, as I've said, uh, seems to have been the only one really to uh, maintain a Beatles level stardom, albums, touring, and I don't know when the last album he produced when he had a hit. I don't know the last hit he had. I think his his hits kind of dried up by by as the seventies ended, but he had those additional songs. So he's been and you know and of course Wings, the band Wings. I'm not sure how long that lasted, but uh, you know he's still relevant. He still plays arenas and you know he's still you know huge because he has the his Beatles songs and his the other solo stuff and the Wings stuff. Uh, as I as I'm saying, as far as I'm concerned, probably the most impressive post Beatles uh, selection of songs. Um, he when Linda Eastman died, then he was married to that woman with one leg. What was her name? I forget her name. But then he broke up with her, and she went on a talk show on television saying that uh, she had evidence that would shock the world about Paul. You can find this. You can find this uh, this interview that she knows something that that people aren't ready to hear and if anything ever happens to her this information is going to come out you know she has some sort of dead man switch somewhere where she has all the evidence that he, obviously the assumption is she's talking about how he's not the original Paul etc but she's you know I don't know how she's how she's still around I guess uh, I guess they can't take out everyone who has anything to say about it it gets a little suspicious but uh yeah, and then he has a new wife, and apparently Paul now, uh, he married a woman who's from New Jersey, from Metuchen, New Jersey. That's not far. That's like sort of between here and New Brunswick. That's I've been there a lot. My uh, my cousin Peter and his wife Gertrude lived in, in Metuchen, and apparently Paul McCartney hangs out in Metuchen a lot. There's a lot of Paul McCartney sightings in New Jersey now. So that's that, that, that that's real interesting. And then, of course, there's the Beatles continue on through their children, um, John Lennon, of course, as far as I know, had two kids. Julian Lennon, the original song, instead of Hey Jude, was Hey Jules. Hey, uh, Julian Lennon is a funny one. Strange situation, right? Because Julian Lennon looked a lot like his father and had a voice a lot like his father and seemed to come and go in the 80s with a song called Valot, V-A-L-O-T-T-E. One song, one hit. And then he, like, vanished. He like, dropped off the face of the earth. Whatever happened to Julian Lennon? Really weird. I'd have to look into that further. And then, of course, with Yoko Ono, he had Sean Lennon. And this guy has been making music, but, I mean, clearly doesn't really have a great amount of talent. It's, it's, it's tough when this stuff, like, skips a generation, especially for track A. If these people really are musical geniuses, Sean Lennon uh, didn't really get much, and... He's been releasing stuff. He's been working with Les Claypool from Primus. He had a band with his uh, model girlfriend called Ghost of a Sabertooth Tiger, including a song called Song for James, <laughs> like James Paul McCartney. Uh, but again, it seems kind of sad. He's a guy that, you know, has mass amount of money and not that much talent and uh, just trying to get by in the world. Yeah, and it, and I guess I guess Yoko Ono just moved out of uh, New York. I guess she was still living in that same apartment, but she just moved moved upstate New York, leaving leaving Manhattan. Uh, so Yoko's still around. Um, 
Ringo, I know he has some kids. I mentioned Zach. I don't. I think he has a few other kids. I don't know. Are there any Beatles third generation Beatles? There must be. There must be. Yeah. I. I again, I'm not looking at the internet for this section, but um, the bloodline of the Beatles is it going to continue? There was also that guy that was that, that was a filled in for Ringo when the Beatles toured Australia. I forget the guy's name, but he considered himself to be technically a Beatle. He com- he's completely lost to history. I don't even know who the guy's name is. Um, George Harrison had a few kids. I know Danny Harrison or Donnie, D-H-A-N-I, Harrison. Uh, also tried to do some stuff. Had a, had a band called, uh, maybe still has a band called The New Number, The New Number Two. Just all lowercase T-H-E, uh, N-E-W-N-O, two. Um, I remember I got that album on the short-lived uh, slot music uh, format where you could buy pre-made uh, music on that little tiny micro SD card for the Sansa players. It was okay, but again, clearly not anything particularly great, and it did seem that he got a record contract because he was the son of a beetle. Um, and I'm not sure there could be other kids. I know Paul McCartney. There's a daughter, Stella. There's a few kids. Maybe uh, the old Paul and the new Paul had a few kids. Uh, I don't think any of them really... And I think there's a son as well, but they, they didn't really go too much into um, music, I don't think. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, like, could Paul McCartney still be alive? Uh, there, there was this uh, in the Paul is Dead uh, world. There was uh, some footage of a tour guide at Paul's childhood home, who was interviewed on on video. And some people are like, "Is that? Could that? Could that be the original Paul? Could he have not died? It, that's just the original Paul." Um, I don't think it was, but so maybe Paul's still alive. Maybe he's still going. <laughs> Who knows? But yeah, it just it just seems that in all the footage I've seen at all t- times, the Beatles after the Beatles, there's a kind of a sadness, a sadness and a darkness to it all, which, um, you know, in track A, I think you could say, you know, when we talk about, when you look at most people that are songwriters, performers, they usually do their best work in their late teens, early 20s. And then this is a much larger question as to what is that that happens. I know that uh, when it comes to like the, um, the development of the brain, the brain finally reaches maturity around age 25, which interestingly seems to be the time for a lot of musicians that they, they lose that spark of uh, creativity and they're not able to write great songs anymore. So could it be that as the brain is still developing, there's this vital period, uh, late teens to mid-twenties, where you're, you have this uh, capacity for all kinds of creativity that is greater than you'll ever have again. And so many uh, rock stars, let's say, specifically, that continue on, they just have to go on stage and perform the hits, the songs they wrote when they were 20. And there's something sort of inherently sad about that, that you're sort of a shadow of your former self and you're sort of living in the, uh, in the shadow of, of your younger, of, of you when you were younger. So the Beatles, that kind of sadness and that kind of 
that forlorn quality to um, every time we sort of see them in interviews and documentaries, etc. It could simply be that. And track A, right, it could simply be that, you know, wow, look at what we did and now I have to keep living, but I'm not doing that stuff anymore. And clearly, if any of them could keep writing songs like that, they would. And perhaps they did at least... I don't know, are there any songs that the Beatles were involved with after 1980 that were at all significant hits? I mean, um, I don't know, maybe Paul had a few hits in the 80s. George, again, with that Cloud Nine album, a little bit, but nothing that significant. So it is all pretty sad. Even in track A, it's sad, but in track B, it's... uh, takes on a much more tragic quality because these individuals were let's say somewhat victimized by the uh, the entire process in a way so I don't know I think the Beatles after the Beatles uh, suffered no matter which track you're on but the rest of us that are we're not Beatles we could continue to benefit from uh, the age of the Beatles, the the time of the Beatles, generally the nineteen all of the nineteen sixties, and the music, the movies, the myths, the legends, as we've sort of shown in these past um, several months, uh, delving into the Beatles, uh, we're the ones to really benefit from it because whatever it's track H or track B. It doesn't matter, really, because we're all able to benefit from this incredible body of work, this incredible... uh, It's not just the music, it's their personalities, all the interviews, the movies, the legends, everything. And even the Paul is Dead thing is obviously in track, uh, track A, because, you know, it's a big topic, you know. Uh, In track A, people are like... uh, I think... I don't think people completely deny that there was uh, something there, but that it was just some sort of a publicity stunt. Uh, That's what people say. It's like a publicity stunt, an in-joke, something like that. Um, Yeah, because like like when I got into the Beatles, it was around 1990. I was around like – it was my early – I was in my early 20s, and it really hit me real hard. I became such a super fan, and – has meant so much to me over the years, and just uh, revisiting all the songs, it, it, it's just, it, the songs to me just keep getting better and better the more you hear them. And that's something that, I'm a huge music fan, and some bands, I would say Steely Dan, chief among them, the songs, the Steely Dan songs just keep getting better and better the more you hear them. And the Beatles songs, to me, even the ones that you've heard a million times, I have to say, they just keep getting better and better. That's how great the songs are. Interestingly, uh, just this past week, I sort of encountered a few Guns N' Roses songs, and I was a fairly big Guns N' Roses fan. I remember uh, their song, uh, You Could Be Mine, from Terminator 2 in 1991. Uh, Really got me into them, and I actually went to a record store at midnight when Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 came out, and I really listened a lot to those albums, and I liked them a lot. Ran into some of their songs uh, recently, and to me, those songs... Do not age well. I heard um, Night Train, Mr. Brownstone, uh, a few others, uh, Locomotive. I couldn't stand them. They did not age well. And some bands don't age well. But the Beatles stuff is so strong. And 
so remarkable and just unbelievably great songs. And I think one of the biggest revelations of our the process here on the Central in our Beatles phase was uh, the movie Magical Mystery Tour, the TV film. I saw it once or twice before, and I kind of, like everyone else, had this impression, oh, it's crap. But this time around, I realized that Magical Mystery Tour is actually really good, and I would recommend everyone go out and check that out. There's a number of copies of it on the Internet Archive you can just you can watch. Um, watched it a few times, and I really was super impressed with it. And uh, <laughs> the Bonzo Dog Band being on there with their Death Cab for Cutie song is amazing. So the Beatles after the Beatles, I don't know. They didn't. They didn't do too great, you know. I mean, hey, who knows? I. I, I mean, the two that remain in in track A, uh, you know, or track B, I suppose you could say, because obviously New Paul is a Beatle as well, but. You know, beyond anything else, they're massively wealthy and can travel and have all sorts of fun that regular people can't. So, you know, maybe they're doing, maybe Ringo and Paul are still doing all right. I don't know. But it's so interesting, as I mentioned last time, how Paul announced that uh, he's using AI to complete the final Beatles song. And recently, just the past couple of days, he had to clarify that. It's not an AI-generated song. They're simply improving John Lennon's vocal track. He had to sort of clarify that. that everything else is from those sessions in the mid-'90s where Ringo and George additionally added parts to that song, as we talked about last time. That will be the last Beatles song. And then, of course, still great anticipation for Carnival of Light. I know I keep talking about it, but it is really the last... Beatles song everyone is uh, waiting to hear. So once uh, now and then that third song comes out in Carnival of Light, will it will we have sort of reached the end of an era 50-some-odd years later? Uh, I don't know. There could always be more stuff dredged up. You never know. What about other adjunct Beatles? How about Billy Preston? I don't know whatever. I really don't know whatever happened to him. He played a few things on uh, Let It Be. He's in the he's in the uh, you know he's he's in the Get Back documentary. I always thought it was sort of George Harrison's way of commenting on the new Paul is named Billy, so he brought in his own Billy to the band. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else ever pointed that out. Maybe they did in the in the Paul is Dead gang groups out there. Uh, any other Beatles? Any other like Beatles? Technical Beatles out there? I don't know. I think we covered most of them. And I guess the one last topic would be their company, Apple Corps, C-O-R-P-S, Apple Corps. A little play on words, get it? Um, which uh, in recent years has, uh, it was quite a while ago, but they finally settled with Apple Computer, their their trademark dispute, and finally got the, uh, the Beatles music on Apple Music, et cetera, et cetera. That's a whole other fascinating story, the Apple Corps story with... Um, you know, the Apple Boutique, where, where uh, it was all completely mismanaged, and that weirdo Magic Alex, that uh, charlatan who claimed to be an electronics expert, was just, was just a real scam artist, right? That's a whole real fascinating thing. So I guess Apple Corps does continue on. Um, yeah. Still going to some extent. 
But I suppose looking ahead, obviously, they're not getting any younger. We will, uh, we will uh, lose Paul and Ringo at some point. And those are, those are two events that I suppose are inevitable. And uh, those are still two Beatles events that will happen, the death of Paul and death of Ringo. Um, I don't want it to happen anytime soon. I like the idea that there's still some Beatles out there anyways. The Beatles after the Beatles. Just a few thoughts there. And uh, PQ, this has been an amazing journey. Uh, really, really uh, had a great time in our Beatles phase here on the Central. Back to you, PQ. Yeah, thanks for sticking with me, Frank. This has been a long, strange trip as uh, your uh, pals, the Grateful Dead, I like that song. I mean, there's that middle era of the dead, but that's a whole other thing. Um, it, 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 uh, you, the drummer that played in Australia when Ringo had his tonsils removed, I guess. Maybe Ringo was replaced then. It's hard to say. But he was a guy named Jimmy Nicole. I memorized that back in the days when there were like real trivia contests. And trivial, meaningless stuff like that was trivia. And, yeah, he faded back into obscurity, and Lord only knows whatever happened to Jimmy Nicole. But what I wonder is, what happened to Billy Preston? Is he even still alive? I don't remember hearing Billy Preston past. And I know for a while, I mean, he's the only guy who was, like, almost a member of the Beatles and almost a member of the Rolling Stones. And speaking of that... A few months ago, not long ago, there was all this talk about the Stones doing stuff with Paul and Ringo. It, it, is my memory just like that Swiss cheesy? And then it just, maybe the stuff just wasn't that good. I'm not sure what happened there or whether it's going to come out later. That's the Stones Beatles. Because they do have that the original, you know, you got your guitar players at the Stones, and the rhythm section, bass and drums, is the Beatles, so on a musical combo level, that's very workable. And that would be, I don't know, interesting. Paul and Mick singing harmonies, that, that could be, and Keith Richards playing guitar, that that's a fascinating concept. And, and I gotta have, I just, I love Frank's commitment to the, that Paul is dead and this, what he's building. I mean, he's gone farther, I think, than any other conspiracy theorist that I know of, that it, as far as like building the, these two timelines and what might have happened here and there. That's just pure onsug magic entertainium at its finest and uh, help make this all roll right along but uh, yeah, let's listen to whatever I put together and uh, then we'll talk about the return of the old topic of week I guess if I'm going to start Central. talking about the Beatles solo stuff you have to start well then Ringo okay Ringo oddly enough at the beginning of the Beatles' breakup, and for a long, he was possibly the most successful consistently, 
I mean, yeah, his first two solo albums are those. There's a song about uh, an album about songs that his mother liked called Sentimental Journey, which was pretty self indulgent and meh. Even today, I tried listening to it. And it's it's Ringo, going on and on, and then it, Ringo, as you can tell by the covers he did when he was with the Beatles, he he liked country music, so he did one called Bocus of Blues, which again, it just is a couple of songs that are kind of interesting, you know, album tracks, but there were no hits and. I don't think they they sold better than most other albums of that quality because it was Ringo, but really. And in fact, he kind of tried to pretend they didn't exist when he went on to uh, his more successful part of his recording career. He came out with an album called Ringo's Fourth, which was actually a sixth album, thereby, I, I think, those first two albums went out of print and everybody just kind of went along and said, okay, okay, Ringo. But he had some hits. I mean, songs like It Don't Come Easy, um, Back Off Boogaloo. I mean, these weren't particularly great songs, but they were top 40 hits and they sold and he was successful. And he had almost all the albums in that successful era had his Beatle friends somewhat participating, and he appeared on other people's albums, I think more so than any of the other Beatles. So he, and to this day, I tours with Ringo's All-Stars, tours with people like Todd Rundgren. So Ringo, after the Beatles, uh, yeah, he did all those movies as well, and married Barbara Bach, which, and, and it's a successful marriage. They've stayed married for like 40 years now. Just and movies like Caveman. No, he did never made a great successful film, but it's in the seventies especially. Ringo had a lot of fun, and of course, uh, when he had to sober up. But now, he looks healthy. He's still out drumming at what eighty something. Good on him. Good on Ringo. All right, moving right. I don't want to belabor any of the Beatles. I mean, Frank is going to talk. And I'm recording this before uh, I listen and put the show together with Frank's segment. Um, next up would be George Harrison, who, in the day, at least in the circle I was in, he was just too spiritual or something. I mean, I what was I, 11, 12 years old, and the Hare Krishna thing... I, I tried, I mean, they were, they were in the mall and they had the books and I tried reading the books and there were even a couple of record albums that the Hare Krishnas would be selling to raise money and they had George Harrison on them, which they sort of had. I mean, he may have played some guitar on it or something, but George Harrison wasn't on them. He was kind of used as a shill to push the Hare Krishna movement and... I I never, I mean, I even had a friend who became a Hare Krishna for a while and realized that something just wasn't right. And for those who follow that faith and find it valid for them, I don't want to invalidate that. Because religion, I mean, at the end of the day, 
whatever makes you feel good and you're convinced and have faith, that's really what it's all about. There's, it, they're based on faith. But Harrison, he had My Sweet Lord, which was a pretty big hit. But again, the, his big thing was, and I even I bought into it, was the concert for Bangladesh, which was, at the time, it just swept everything in my circle of people. It was a huge selling album. There was a movie that I remember going to. And I mean, it had Bob Dylan and Leon Russell. And it was my first exposure to Leon Russell. And it was my first exposure to Leon Russell. Um, and no, he didn't have his Beatle reunion. I think Ringo was there and John and Paul stayed away. But it, it was just huge. And a triple album... Aside from Woodstock, there was no such thing, and it came in that neat box. And unfortunately, all the money he raised, I think, was caught up somewhere and never even got to Bangladesh, which was, there were two countries, East and West Pakistan, and they, let's get into the politics now, and they had religious differences, and Bangladesh was formed off, and there were all these people starving there, and it really was a good humanitarian move with good intentions on Harrison's part. But I guess the money never got to where it was going, so it was a futile gesture. Um, he came out with solo albums every year or two, and I don't remember, nothing stands out in my head as, oh, I had to run out and get it. So for me, Harrison was just for older people, too mature, too spiritual and introspective. Um, and then he came out with an album called 33 and a Third, which was associated, I think, even co-produced by Eric Idle. And he was doing all that stuff in the UK that I saw later, um, the sponsoring part, being part of handmade films. And, and that was a really cool time. And those are some great poppy songs on the 33 in a third album. He made a Saturday Night Live appearance that was really cool. What was it? Cracker Jack, Crackerback Palace, something like that. That was really, that, that album had some good songs. And the album after that, a little less so. And, but Harrison, as much as I respect him as a musician and an artist, was never that Beatle. I mean, his songs... I think I appreciate his songs on the Beatle albums more now than I ever did back then. They were droney, they had sitars, they were just too... I mean, now Within You, Without You from Sgt. Pepper is has some meaning and it's kind of cool. But back then, I mean, it was a song that when I played the album as a kid, I had no compunction in skipping right over. Let's hear the Beatles. What is this? His death was horribly tragic, but that's a whole other thing. I mean, it's a, these shocking, just like, well, the next Beatle I'm going to talk about, John Lennon. John Lennon, yeah, he had all that Yoko Ono band records, which to this day, I just, I don't have an ear for it. I don't have a very good appreciation for even the most listenable Yoko Ono stuff. You know, songs like Walking on Thin Ice. That's, yeah, okay, that's a great song, but you know what? 
I like Elvis Costello's cover of it far better than the one where she's going, yike, 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 uh, please. You know, and that when he came back after many years, uh, John Lennon, that Double Fantasy album, listening to it in retrospect, it's very meh. At the time, you know, he'd been gone for years and his last few solo albums were you know, Walls and Bridges. Um, they were okay, a song like Mind Games. And probably his best solo album was the Imagine album. And the song Imagine was like Let It Be to me. I'd skip over it. Yeah, it was nice, but kind of mawkish and preachy. But there are some very good songs, uh, Crippled Inside, Jealous Guy. Imagine, to me, is his strong point in his solo career. And we don't need to go into the tragedy and the horror of his death and the kind of sadness that he spent all those years in the Dakota in his bed not really doing a heck of a lot. There's that. For me, I guess especially as a kid and in the real time, McCartney was just so amazing. And that first McCartney solo album, it, it was okay. I liked it. But the Ram album, even to this day, there is something really cool and almost Beatlesque. Probably the closest thing to Beatlesque of any solo Beatles album of them all. I Uncle Albert was a pretty big hit. It was on the radio all the time. Even though the critics, like Rolling Stone, I guess they sort of blamed him for breaking up the Beatles and being an egomaniac. And he kind of fell out of favor in that way. And that Ram album, I, I heartily recommend it if you've never listened to it. Uh, to, I have a friend who really hates the song Monkberry Moon Delight from the album, but I don't know. I, I just find it kind of catchy. Uh, three Legs, where he's talking about his dog has three legs. They're just catchy, fun McCartney songs. A little pretentious. And then after that, he formed his quote-unquote band, Wings. And a lot of people don't like the Wildlife album. I must have been the right age, the right place, and the right time. Uh, it's it's an early example of what came to be called indie pop. There's no fancy production. The songs are kind of goofy and thrown together. And it just has a nice down-home feel. And especially for somebody who at the time never had to do anything again because the money was going to keep pouring in. It's just a marvel in audio. And what McCartney's done, he, you know, I like Venus and Mars was another Wings album. The Wings stuff, again, commercial, I was the right age, and they were catchy. And looking back, I mean, it's not anything astounding like a Beatles album. But at the time when we were hungry for more Beatles, it sort of filled the appetite a little in young, pre-age 16 PQ River. And then, of course, even the later, like Back to the Egg, the later Wings album. And looking back on his stuff after that, it's just album after album. There's some good songs, some bad songs. Um, 
the My Brave Face album that he did with Trevor Horn had some interesting things. But by and large, he was just keeping it going, touring. I mean, that marijuana bus didn't do it very much good. And he was having fun with his wife, I think. And the guy liked making music. He still does. I mean, he's making that new Beatles single, or he's made it, and it just hasn't been released. And he stays with the cutting edge and tries to keep up with it. Um, That thing he did with Boy, uh, The Fireman, where he came out with two albums that didn't have his name on them anywhere. I mean, they're not great either, but they're a sign that he's trying to do something. I found his Nirvana reunion, which was a big news for about five minutes, and is now nobody remembers Paul McCartney's Nirvana reunion and that song, Your Mama, which it still persists on YouTube, but I think everybody would rather forget that. And Paul's still with us, and he's kind of a grand old gentleman of the Beatles and pop music, and at 80-something years old, that anybody with that much money is still doing something I have to respect. And yep, that's me with the post-Beatles, aside from whatever comments I made during Frank's thing. And uh, let's uh, talk about next week's Overnightscape Central. Sorry, sorry, okay, okay, okay. Um, next week, we get back to, and, and I expect you guys to step up and get back into the thing. I think I have a pretty good topic that we can all uh, talk about. Uh, because we're all moving into the future, we are going to talk about how we consume media. Because the whole paradigm has changed. The physical media is just, that's for collectors, and you don't even open the package because you can just download it or something, and you don't have to touch it. It, It's Physical media is now this, like, collectible object, not a record collection that the records get worn out and the covers start looking a little rough, and and we just don't do that. It's And more and more... Every day, I'm doing it. I mean, I'm giving up all of my physical media because it's just there. It's accessible, and it's easier to find. I mean, if you have this huge music collection, just figuring out where you filed something in the same amount of time, I can go over to Spotify and bang, there it is. Or whatever the media system and the realms of obtaining, all of it. We're just in a new, truly digital age and it's amazing and that yeah that's what we're going to talk about and examine next week right here your thoughts on that and what might happen in the future as we go forward with all of these gadgets and gizmos and ai uh, searching like uh, they were talking about on the exit ramp that that you're just going to be able to find a little passage you heard 30 years ago on a podcast in seconds, it's mind-boggling. Mind-boggling is, you know, carrying a supercomputer in your pocket wherever you go, which we do nowadays. So, here's how it works. The deadline for this will be next Monday, and it'll be our first July 2023 podcast uh, of the uh, Overnightscape Central. 
And the uh, date will be July 3rd, 2023. Yeah, I know it's 4th of July weekend, and holiday weekends mean that uh, people are less prone to have time or patience, or mostly, I mean, I do understand the idea of trying to record something when there's people around and things to do is just that much more difficult added to what's already a task. But that's nonetheless what we're going to do. And again, if you got stuff to say about the Beatles, send it because that this should be a complete look at what everybody within the sound of this program uh, thinks. The email address for you to send your uh, audio submission, or as always, you can send something written out, typed out like an email, and I'll be more than glad to read it on your behalf. If you're mic shy, you can't get to somewhere where you feel comfortable talking into a mic, any of those things. I want to accommodate and hear what you think, how we consume media. The email address is kpqr.torc at gmail.com. Saying it again, kpqr.torc at gmail.com. Thanks to everybody who participated in this Beetle Fest here on the Overnightscape Underground. And, um, Until the next time we meet, set the controls for the heart of the fun.